Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Givinoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Well, hello there. Welcome to the first episode of season three of the Say the Word podcast. I have 10 episodes for you this season, and I am so excited for each and every one of them. If you're new here, welcome. I'm Cindy Giovanoli, and I'm a life and business coach who works primarily with my clients on developing their curiosity skills in order to more quickly and easily stay out of suckness and judgment and move forward with what matters to them. Here on the podcast, we look at passages from all kinds of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry as a launching pad for our own inquiry. Now, if you'd like to hear a little more about this, I definitely encourage you to reach back to episode one, where I talk just a little bit about how this podcast came to be, and what my vision for it initially looked like. Now, a gentle reminder here, I am not here as a literary critic, and I'm not seeking to analyze writing craft. I'm here to dive in and dig around and celebrate the powerful ways that different writers from different backgrounds and experiences can capture some part of what it means to be human and to get curious about how What we find in this writing can help each of us peel back the layers in our own lives that are keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives that we were always meant to be living. So let's move toward today's passage. Now, as I warned you I would at the beginning of season two, I am beginning the season with another Brian Doyle essay. I just can't not share more of his work with you here. So We are kicking things off with an excerpt from his essay, Final Frontier, which is another from his collection, One Long River of Song. Okie dokie. So let's get right to it. Of course you do your absolute best to find and hone and wield your divine gifts against the dark. You do your best to reach out tenderly to touch and elevate as many people as you can reach. You bring your naked love and defiant courage and salty grace to bear as much as you can with all the attentiveness and humor you can muster. This life is after all a miracle and we ought to pay fierce attention every moment as much as possible. But you cannot control anything You cannot order or command everything. You cannot fix and repair everything. You cannot protect your children from pain and loss and tragedy and illness. You cannot be sure that you will always be married, let alone happily married. You cannot be sure you will always be employed or healthy or relatively sane. All you can do is face the world with quiet grace and hope you make a sliver of difference. Humility does not mean self-abnegation lassitude, detachment. 
It's more a calm recognition that you must trust in that which does not make sense, that which is unreasonable, illogical, silly, ridiculous, crazy by the measure of most of our culture. You must trust that you, being the best possible you, matters somehow. That trying to be an honest and tender parent will echo for centuries through your tribe. That doing your chosen work with creativity and diligence will shiver people far beyond your ken. That being an attentive and generous friend and citizen will prevent a thread or two of the social fabric from unraveling. And you must do all of this with the certain knowledge that you will never get proper credit for it. And in fact, the vast majority of things you do right will go utterly unremarked. Humility, the final frontier, as my brother Kevin used to say. When we are young, we build a self, a persona, a story in which to reside, or several selves in succession, or several at once sometimes. When we are older, we take on other roles and personas, other masks and duties, and you and I both know men and women who become trapped in the selves they worked so hard to build, so desperately imprisoned that sometimes they smash their lives simply to escape who they no longer wish to be. But finally, I think, if we are lucky, if we read the book of pain and loss with humility, we realize that we are all broken and small and brief, that none among us is ultimately more valuable or rich or famous or beautiful than another. And then perhaps we begin to understand something deep and true about humility. This is what I know, that the small is huge, that the tiny is vast, that pain is part and parcel of the gift of joy, and that this is love and then there is everything else. You either walk toward love or away from it with every breath you draw, Humility is the road to love. Humility maybe is love. That could be. I wouldn't know. I'm a muddle and a conundrum, shuffling slowly along the road, gaping in wonder, trying to just see and say what is, trying to leave shreds and shards of ego along the road like wisps of litter and chaff. Man, I just love his writing so much. I have read and reread these essays time and again, and this remains my desert island book. All right, so there is so much to dig into here. Too much, actually, as I indulged in a bigger chunk of this essay than I likely should have, though I do maintain that you should be impressed with the restraint I showed at not reading it to you in its entirety. So <laughs> let's take our wins where we can find them, right? Since there is so much here, I am going to have to skip some parts I would dearly love to go into, but I just want to grab a few sections to really focus and dig into. So let's begin at the beginning with this first paragraph. He says, of course you do your absolute best to find and hone and wield your divine gifts against the dark. You do your best to reach out tenderly to touch and elevate as many people as you can. You bring your naked love and defiant courage and salty grace to bear as much as you can with all the attentiveness and humor you can muster. Now, I love this generally, of course, but I want to linger for a minute on a few specific word choices he makes here. He begins this paragraph with, of course. 
Of course you do your absolute best. Of course you find and hone and wield your gifts. Of course you reach out to touch and elevate people. Of course you bring your love and courage and grace to bear. Of course you do. And this of course suggests that these things are a given. It suggests that they are the default settings that we are all born with, that they are inherent. How beautiful is that? There's no question here of whether we, each one of us, has divine gifts within us to wield against the dark. Of course we do. And of course we're all out here doing our absolute best to find them and hone them and offer them to the world. Isn't this that largeness that we talked about back in episode 18? Of course we each contain vast and inherent gifts and love and courage and grace and tenderness. That is the natural state of being human before we are conditioned by various means to believe otherwise. In a state that we are invited back to over and over again as we heal our wounds, accept our largeness, stay curious with what comes up as we move through our lives. Now, some other word choices in this paragraph that struck me. He describes our love as naked. He says we bring our naked love to bear. Is there a better word to evoke a sense of pure vulnerability? Naked, unshielded, unarmored, utterly without even the smallest thread of protection. Isn't this love in its truest form? It hides nothing, no part of it held back or reserved. Of course, he says, of course we bring our naked love to bear. Our most natural, our most given default form of love is open and unencumbered. And alongside that naked love, we bring our courage and our grace, described by Doyle as defiant and salty. What does he mean our courage is defiant? To be defiant is to be disobedient, right? To not acquiesce in some situation or state, to not submit. And like naked love, doesn't this get at the very heart of courage? Can you imagine a courage that is obedient? No, right? Courage is synonymous with boldness and challenge in some inherent way. It can look very different in different situations. Sometimes it is simply holding on, not giving up in some way. Sometimes it's gallantry or heroism fighting for some justice. Sometimes it's a willingness to step forward into the unknown or to embrace uncertainty in some way, to stay curious and open despite our fear. But there is a defiance tucked into how courage actually takes form in behavior, right? I mean, I couldn't think of a single example, and I assure you that I tried, of courage where defiance couldn't sit beside it in some way. You know, there's no courage without some sort of opposition, right? Be it fear or injustice or, you know, defeat of some sort. I mean, if you can think of one, give me a shout because I would love to hear it. I couldn't think of a single example of courage without some defiance. And salty grace. I mean, this might be my favorite line here. Salty implies some grit, right? Roughness. Maybe even some discomfort or pain, like salt in a wound. But salt is also a seasoning, right? It can enhance other flavors when added in the right amount to almost anything we cook. So how does that fit with grace? 
In the context here, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that he means grace as in mercy or forgiveness. Mercy and forgiveness for ourselves and extended to others. Salty grace. You know, grace is sort of a smooth word, isn't it? Soft and sort of gentle in some way. Maybe that's just because it can also be used to convey beauty or charm. But grace as forgiveness is not something that feels smooth or soft or gentle at all as we maneuver through it, does it? Whether we're offering grace to ourselves or to others, that salty, gritty, and sometimes painful. I mean, if that doesn't sum up the process of forgiveness, well, I don't, I don't know what does. And also, like adding a pinch of salt to chocolate chip cookies, it can bring richer flavor into our lives, can't it? Man, I could spend all day on this paragraph alone. But one last note on this sentence before I have to move on. He says, You bring your naked love and defiant courage and salty grace to bear as much as you can with all the attentiveness and humor you can muster. With all the attentiveness and humor you can muster. Attention and humor are the levers we use to pry as much love and courage and grace as we can manage out of ourselves and into this world, as much as we can muster, as much as we can find and access and call forth in ourselves, as much as we can rally at any given moment. The more attention and humor we can muster, the stronger our levers and the more love and courage and grace we can bring forth. Now, he follows this by reminding us of all that we cannot control in this world, all that we cannot fix or protect or command. And while it breaks my damn heart to skip over really digging into this, I want to jump forward because he whacks us with this next paragraph. He says, all you can do is face the world with quiet grace and hope you make a sliver of difference. And he continues to explain that humility is not self-abnegation or lassitude or detachment, but the recognition that we must trust that, quote, you being the best possible you matters somehow. Then he gives us some examples, being an honest and tender parent, doing your chosen work with creativity and diligence, being an attentive and generous friend. And while I so want to jump in and just start exclaiming over these ideas, there's one more sentence I want to hit before I do because it is a doozy. He says, And you must do all of this with a certain knowledge that you will never get proper credit for it. And in fact, the vast majority of the things you do right will go utterly unremarked. So hope that you make a sliver of difference. Trust that you being the best possible you matter somehow all with a certain knowledge that the vast majority of what you do right will go utterly unremarked. Oh, that feels huge to me. You know, there are a few different directions I'm tempted to go as we think about and discuss this, but at the heart of all of them is this idea of trusting that being the best versions of ourselves matters whether or not anyone else notices or cares. His examples where he says things like, doing your chosen work with creativity and diligence will shiver people far beyond your ken. And that being an attentive and generous friend and citizen will prevent a thread or two of the social fabric from unraveling. They all mention the sort of external, larger contributions that this being the best possible you makes. 
And that's not nothing. That is how we create a world that we can all enjoy, how we make that sliver of difference on this large scale. But when we come in close, it's also how we create a life that we enjoy, right? Because there is richness and deep satisfaction in doing our work with creativity and diligence in the right now relationships that grow out of being an honest and tender parent or an attentive and generous friend. You know, there's a subtle and deep dissonance created when we know that our behaviors don't quite match up with what actually matters to us. When it's a major break, it feels really obvious, of course, but I think sometimes we can overlook the quieter dissatisfaction that happens in the small gaps. Those moments when we realize that we haven't been the one to reach out first to a certain friend for a while, or when we've developed a habit of checking our phones a little too often during our kid's soccer game and we know they've caught it a few times. Or maybe we've procrastinated yet again on a deadline and are delivering something that doesn't really reflect what we know that we're capable of, what could have been so much better if we just gotten to it instead of you know, deciding that today is the day that we must urgently dust every baseboard in the house since, you know, it hasn't been done since 1982. You know, nothing so egregious necessarily as to, you know, warrant packing up our bags for guilt town, but enough that leave us with like a general and vague unease, a dissonance that just steals a little of our joy, that creates a craving for something else or something more. It just leaves us a little dissatisfied. And it also gives us information, right? Real-time feedback for our own choices if we're paying attention. You know, we sleep better and feel more comfortable in our own skins when we act in a way that lines up with us being the best possible us we can be. You know, I was so I was mentioning this idea of having what we do right in our lives go unremarked to my husband, Justin, and he made an analogy that I really loved and wanted to share. He said it reminded him of offensive linemen in football and how they're relatively invisible on the field unless they make a mistake and the quarterback gets sacked. Yes, right? Isn't this the case with so much of our lives? You know, we barely notice or register when we're going along and doing the things that line up with who we want to be with our best possible selves. You know, when we're showing up for our friends and our commitments and all the things that matter to us, we, we barely notice, right? The vast majority of the time, no one else does either. These things that we're doing right that go utterly unremarked. We're simply moving through our day-to-day -day lives, doing our best to bring our love and courage and grace to bear. It's a sort of invisible labor that we fail to note unless we, um, I don't know, screw up and <laughs> someone gets sacked, even if that someone is the person we're all carrying inside us full of that infinite potential. One additional note on Doyle's word choice here. He says that we must trust that you being the best possible you matters. What he did not say is that we must trust that you being perfect matters. You know, sometimes the best possible us in any given moment is utterly imperfect. Sometimes we learn and grow and we cringe when we look back at choices made by the best possible versions of ourselves from a year ago or five years ago. This is where we bring that salty grace to bear. 
We acknowledge that we were then, as now, doing the best we could do in that moment with the tools that we had then. And part of that means acknowledging and learning what there is to learn from those old choices and then facing forward into the moment in front of us and being the best possible us in this moment and the next moment. You know, perfect isn't available to any of us. We have to settle for the ever-evolving truth of what it means to be the best possible us. Unremarked and unacknowledged as that will very likely be. Okay, so it, it just about kills me to skip over this section where he talks about personas and identities we build for ourselves and how our attachment to them can be so destructive. But... I want to make sure that we have time for a couple of pieces from closer to the end, at least quickly. Now, he finishes this paragraph with, If we are lucky, if we read the book of pain and loss with humility, we realize that we are all broken and small and brief, and that none among us is ultimately more valuable or rich or famous or beautiful than another. And then perhaps we begin to understand something deep and true about humility. We are all broken and small and brief. Oh, there isn't a person living who hasn't already known or won't someday know pain and loss. And even when we're leveraging every ounce of naked love and defiant courage that we can muster, when we're working to be that best possible us, it can be difficult and messy and so, so imperfect. And we have to lean hard into that salty grace, into that mercy for ourselves and our own brokenness and for others and theirs. As always, the first step toward that salty grace and the compassion it calls for can often be found tucked into curiosity. Asking questions bent toward genuine understanding and deep truth can pull us right out of our anger or our self-righteousness or our self-flagellation and into real interest and real connection. You know, questions, what pain might be at the heart of this person's behavior or my own behavior? Is there something I can do to heal or lessen this pain? Am I doing the best I know how to do here? Am I living out what matters to me? What does that look like? What other questions come to mind? How can we apply the realization that each one of us is broken and small and brief, that none of us are ultimately more valuable or rich or famous or beautiful than any other in our actual real life day in and day out lives. You know, this is worth digging into, worth really considering what this means for each of us, how it can actually look in our interactions with others and in our own inner dialogue with ourselves. And he finishes this essay with this stunning paragraph that I'm just going to go ahead and read in its entirety here. He says, this is what I know that the small is huge, that the tiny is vast, that pain is part and parcel of the gift of joy, and that this is love, and then there is everything else. You either walk toward love or away from it with every breath you draw. Humility is the road to love. Humility, maybe, is love. That could be. I wouldn't know. I'm a muddle and a conundrum, shuffling slowly along the road, gaping in wonder, trying to just see and say what is, trying to leave shreds and shards of ego along the road, like wisps of litter and chaff. If we understand humility as, at least in part, the acceptance that every one of us is broken and small and brief and that none of us is more or less valuable than any other, 
We can use that understanding to choose which direction we walk on that road to love in any given moment. We can choose our naked love and our defiant courage and our salty grace to move toward it. And we do this by staying with curiosity, with seeking genuine understanding, with trying to truly see one another and ourselves in the light of that humility. His final line here where he says, I'm a muddle and a conundrum shuffling slowly along the road, gaping in wonder, trying to just see and say what is, trying to leave shreds and shards of ego along the road like wisps of litter and chaff. I mean, that just slays me. It's so great. He says he's shuffling slowly along the road. And since just a few sentences earlier, he referred to humility as the road to love, we can only assume that that's the road he's referencing, right? And he's shuffling slowly, an implication that this is not a process of understanding that can be raced through or solved overnight. He's gaping in wonder. You know, slow movement, it allows for close looking, right? It allows us to come in close and notice the textures and patterns that might be overlooked by a more cursory glance. Gaping in wonder and trying to just see and say what is. Not what some identity or persona wants to see, not what aligns with some hidden agenda or self-aggrandizement, but an acceptance and wonder and awe of what simply and truly is. Leaving shreds and shards of ego shreds and shards, not dropping it all in one enlightened foul swoop, but breaking it off or sloughing it off as he sees it, as he notices it, one small bit at a time, noticing where ego might be blocking his view of something to gape and wonder at and letting that shred or shard go. Again, what does this look like? How do we leave these shreds and shards of our ego along the road to love so that we can move toward it too? Again, I think this often begins with curiosity, curiosity, curiosity. Letting our judgment be shoved aside by our fascination, by the openness and wonder that real and genuine interest requires of us. Asking what if? What if I'm as valuable and worthy as everyone else I know? What if that person I so heartily disagree with is as valuable and worthy as I am? What if we are all broken and small and brief and valuable and beautiful and trying to figure out how to shed our egos enough to gape at the wonder of that truth? Keep going. Keep asking. Keep digging into these ideas with every bit of the naked love and defiant courage and salty grace that you can muster. It will require attentiveness and humor. It will require trust that what you hold inside you matters, even when it goes unremarked. But you can shuffle toward love and witness wonder that will leave you gaping. So can I. So can we all. Of course we can. Oh, now, again, that's from Brian Doyle's essay, Final Frontier, which can be found in his collection, One Long River of Song. As always, you can find the link to the book in the show notes at cindygivinoli.com backslash podcast. Now, in our first episode of season three, I am sharing an email and quote I received from Nisha M. that goes so above and beyond. She says, Hi, Cindy. I've spent the last couple of months totally immersed in Lee Bardugo's Grishaverse series, and I am obsessed. I have so many quotes from it that I think would be great for your podcast, and I hope you'll consider doing a whole episode on something from one of these books. Pretty please. 
I wanted to share this quote from Crooked Kingdom that I loved, the quote. But what about the rest of us? What about the nobodies and the nothings, the invisible girls? We learn to hold our heads as if we wear crowns. We learn to wring magic from the ordinary. That was how you survived when you weren't chosen, when there was no royal blood in your veins. When the world owed you nothing, you demanded something of it anyway. Anisha says, I thought this idea of learning to hold our heads high and wring magic from the ordinary no matter where we come from or what came before was just the kind of message your podcast is all about. And I just love that last line. When the world owed you nothing, you demanded something of it anyway. It feels, I feel, it feels like it sort of sums up a sliver of what it feels like to be a person of color participating in the world right now. I also wanted to mention that your podcast has inspired me to think differently about the books I read. I've always been a little embarrassed that I don't read more literary types of books. But you've reminded me that there is actually a lot of value to be found in anything we read if we're doing it with real curiosity about the stories and the ways we're all connected as human beings. Thank you for that. It's brought me back to reading after a long time away, and I'm really loving it. Oh, man, Nisha, thank you so much for this entire email. I am so excited about everything you shared here. First, I, too, love the Grishaverse books, so here's my official promise to do an episode on one of them. Maybe I'll just have to give the whole series a reread to find the perfect section for the show. The quote you chose here is fantastic. Thank you. And thank you even more for your kind words about this podcast. Never let anyone shame your reading choices. Stories of every shape and size have the ability to help us see the world with wider, more open eyes and more connection. And also, we are all allowed to read for simple fun and joy as well as for learning. Play and enjoyment matters. Okay, before I go off on a tangent about the importance of fun in our lives, I will wrap this up. Next week, we are going to be looking at a passage from Ta-Nehisi Coates's beautiful, powerful novel, The Water Dancer, and I can't wait. Until then, be sure to stay curious out there. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast, where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Givinoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word.